0: Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO Podcast. I'm Grant Belgard, and joining me today is Fernando Martinez. Fernando did his A.B. in physics at Princeton, followed by an M.S. in biophysics at Stanford and a Ph.D. in biomedical sciences at UCSD. He's now a senior scientist at Fountain Therapeutics. Welcome, Fernando.
1: Thanks, Grant. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. So, can you tell us about what you're doing at Fountain?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I'm just coming up on my two-year anniversary on Fountain. I think it was maybe yesterday. So uh, we're, we're a company that's interested in, in longevity and uh, anti-aging technology. It was founded by a couple people, but um, you know one person who's involved is Tom Rando from Stanford. And he's quite famous for his mouse parabiasis experiments, where he showed that blood from a young mouse could uh, actually rejuvenate an aged mouse. So we kind of have like a, a modern spin on that where we harvest primary cells from young and aged mice, and then we, we put them in culture and we train various computer vision algorithms to estimate the age of images of the cells. So so we can obviously train it because we know what the age of the mouse was ahead of time. Once we have a model that can estimate the age of cells basically from microscopy images, we screen drugs and then ask the same model to basically estimate the age of cells that have been treated with drugs. And uh, we're kind of searching for compounds that might be able to rejuvenate or reverse some of the signs of, of aging. And so far it's it's gone really well, it's really promising. I think everybody who's involved has been um, you know really impressed. So, so as to my role, uh, I joined Fountain, uh, like I said, about two years ago, and it's a pretty small operation at that time. I mean, it was still small, but maybe there's only like I don't I don't know. I think five of us, and we're kind of just in a temporary space, uh, an incubator space with a bunch of other small companies. I kind of been doing a, a whole a whole hodgepodge of different things. My boss Joe Rogers, he uh, he actually calls me the utility infielder for Fountain Therapeutics because I just need to, I guess, play whatever position the the team needs uh, at that time. Sounds like a startup. Yep. So, so far, I've been been happy to do it. The the main things that I kind of did during my, my first two years was trying to figure out how to automate and standardize the assay that we were doing. So, it mostly involved buying and setting up a couple pieces of automation equipment that let us increase our throughput pretty dramatically. So, you know, when I first started, we were maybe working with only a handful of 96 well plates. And now, um, you know, we're processing up to 60, 384 well plates per week, uh, you know, screening a, a whole a whole bunch of different compounds. So, that came about through uh, optimization of our assays but you know also finding the right equipment and uh, configuring it to work for us the other thing that I've been involved in, and I, and I kind of got you know ro- roped into this just by chance, is we we had someone leave that was kind of spearheading a lot of the computational work, uh, especially the image pre-processing. So that there's quite a bit of pre-processing involved in getting the microscopy images ready, you know, to kind of go into a uh, a classification network, let's say for machine learning. So I kind of took over a lot of that work, improving the performance and. Just adding features, I guess, to our pre-processing pipeline, and I've been working on that with you know software engineer that we hired, and you know that's been great. So yeah, it's actually uh, very different from the work that I've done previously in in my career, but I'm happy with it so far. Uh, you know, like I said, I get the opportunity to be a utility infielder and and do something different. That's really
0: interesting. So of course, there are a lot of hypotheses floating around about. Aging. Which of those do you think are amenable to being rescued in cellular models, and which do you think are not?
1: Mm, that's a good question, and, and it's interesting that you should bring that up because Fountain doesn't actually use a hypothesis of, of aging. We kind of do unbiased screening, but but there are other people that have kind of tried to select, um, you know, libraries, small molecules, or, or large molecules according to a hypothesis. So. In terms of which hypotheses are are amenable and which are not, I I think it's still an open question, to be honest. You know, I wouldn't say that there is a drug on the market right now that anybody says is really like a rejuvenating agent or anti-aging. But I can't give you kind of probably my my best example, and that would be uh, arthritis. So I guess kind of the hypothesis there is inflammation. So if you look at uh, drugs that kind of interfere with the TNF-alpha pathway and remicade and Humira uh, are the biggest ones, you know, that, that's definitely hypothesis-driven and, and there's definitely something to it because those drugs have had a huge impact on how people treat, you know, arthritis. Like th- there's cases where as someone was in a wheelchair before they had access to one of these drugs and, and now they can play golf. There's actually cases like that you know, we also know that they're kind of some of the best selling drugs on the planet that have made billions of dollars for the companies that, that made them. So I definitely think there's something to, you know, the inflammation hypothesis, if that's where people want to look. You know, there's other things like senescent cells, you know, that hasn't worked out for anybody yet. But you know, who's to say that, that it won't?
0: What do you think are the, the strongest hypotheses in aging right now?
1: I think inflammation is a pretty important component. It seems like there's definitely something in the immune system that's not the same um, in a young patient versus a, an aged patient. Uh, we can kind of see this with COVID. I think there could be some some interesting things you know having to do with extracellular matrix proteins, for example, you know if you look at things like uh, like osteoporosis or, or fibrosis, where all of a sudden it's it's much more common in an aged patient than a young patient. Inflammation could certainly be involved there, but there, you know, there might be something that's separate from that, just having to do with the deposition of extracellular matrix proteins, you know, that's certainly interesting. The other thing that I would say is probably pretty promising would be some kind of like hormones or growth factors that are are declining in age. I mean that that's certainly the implication from Tom Rando's work, you know that I that I mentioned earlier. I think the trouble is that nobody's really found like one or two molecules that are rejuvenating. But you know that that's not to say that we won't. And to be honest, there are uh, I would say evidence of some like large molecules and and hormones. I mean cer- certainly some people. You know advocate for home hormone replacement therapy for men with low testosterone, for instance, or um you know there's cases where people will give human growth hormone to like a burn victim or something, let's say because it it does seem to increase the rate at which the the injury heals so so I think there's something to that, but uh you know then you get into the question of of whether or not it was worth the the side effects and I, I think that's really the rub. Um, you know, with, with kind of taking any any kind of hormone is that it usually does you know lots of other things that you didn't really intend. So
0: speaking of COVID, it, it, it's interesting because the odds ratios for age are just so much higher than for it, it seems pretty much anything else. What are your thoughts on that? How, how do you think the, the kind of COVID risk that's age related uh, fits in with, with mechanisms of aging?
1: i 'm not super well well versed on it, but you know fr- from the bit that i 've reading that i 've done it it seems like there 's a pretty substantial inflammation component i 'm not sure that there 's controlled studies available yet uh, there may be, but it, it seems anecdotally and observationally uh, once they started treating patients that were getting severe disease with things like dexamethasone that seemed to have a pretty big impact on the the outcome of those patients so at least that 's you know my understanding from the doctors doing it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is some kind of inflammation component there, and and I think that's consistent with just how, how sick some people get after they get severe disease. Some people uh, stay extremely ill for months. You know, some of the patients who have died or, or even not died have spent, you know, like a couple months in the hospital or the ICU, and, and this is way after the virus is gone, you know, probably a couple of weeks after infection that you can't test for the virus anymore, and yet these people are still you know, on a ventilator, uh, fluid on their lungs or whatever. So I I think that's kind of indicative of of something going on, um, you know, in their own bodies that's separate from the virus.
0: Do you think there might be any intersection between the work you're doing at Fountain and COVID therapeutics?
1: We have done some work, you know, with lung epithelial cells. It's kind of too early for me to really comment too much on that, but, um, you know, it's definitely an area of interest for us.
0: Cool. So can you maybe... Take us back to the beginning. Tell us about young Fernando growing up and what led you to to do what you did and 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 how did you ultimately end up where you are now?
1: Uh yeah, I'd be I'd be happy to. So I grew up in New Jersey. It's uh, South Jersey. It's a town called Mount Laurel. It's actually a suburb of Philadelphia, so that's the kind of thing that's kind of interesting is that we tend to affiliate much more with Philadelphia, Philly sports teams, uh, and that sort of thing. You know, it's different from what you would expect from someone from New Jersey, but yeah, South Jersey, it's kind of its own little region, even though it's inside of a, a very small state. So yeah, I kind of grew up in this medium-sized town. I would say is pretty typical suburban childhood. Moved around a, a couple times. We're always kind of in these same small towns in in South Jersey. I uh, went to public school for most of my uh, uh, young life, and I got started in swimming uh, relatively early. I actually started when, when I was six, and I continued doing it throughout high school and college. You know, high school was, was a relatively uneventful, small town, growing up playing sports and all that, but I, I kind of got interested in, in physics. You know, even when I was in high school, I had one teacher who was, who was really, really good. His name was Mr. Hessler. And he just did a great job of getting everybody like really excited about physics, you know, even taking the class outside at night with uh, with telescopes to look at, you know, at Saturn and the moon and and all that kind of thing. So when it time to apply to college, uh, I was kind of looking around and, and I knew that Princeton had a pretty good physics program. You know, it's right there in New Jersey figure like you know why not give it a shot so i actually applied early and i was fortunate enough to get in this is uh 15 years ago so the odds are a lot lower now
0: which they seem to tout right <laughs> like
1: there's always a press release every every admission cycle it seems yeah i mean that the you know that the odds of admission keep going down and yeah i don't know i guess that's a good thing to the admissions office not sure how i feel about that but um you know, once I got there, I had an advisor that told me that kind of my interest in physics might have been important for me being accepted because uh, there was a big push by the department actually to get more students in that were interested in in physics so that the department's very small there. It's usually only like 25 undergraduates or something like that that choose to major physics. You know, the thing about physics is a pretty vast like area of research, right? Like you can have Nuclear or, or particle, you know, and theoretical and experimental uh, disciplines—all all these different things. So it's kind of up to the student to decide what they want, because you obviously can't know everything. But I started to get interested in uh, in biophysics, and that's kind of from from meeting a couple professors that were pretty interesting and, and influential. Also, just because it's it's still a, a relatively small area of research, I guess. I mean, not not that it's not important, but uh, there's kind of a lot of questions in biophysics that can be addressed with relatively small experiments or just some some creative theories that it hasn't evolved to the point of something like like high energy physics where it's it's not really possible to do like a very impactful experiment in high energy physics you know unless you have access to like a huge staff and a particle accelerator and all and all these kind of things um you know that's just just kind of how things have have evolved so i'd say that that biophysics is still in an earlier stage where you know, it's still possible to do thought experiments or benchtop experiments that that still have a very high impact. You know, the two professors at Princeton that were really kind of important for my decision to continue studying biophysics were um, David Tank and Bob Austin. So uh, David Tank is a pretty distinguished neuroscientist. He worked at Bell Labs, you know, back in the 90s. And he contributed like both experimentally and theoretically to what we know about neuroscience, especially neural networks and also kind of these high tech uh, recording techniques that, you know, let people probe individual neurons and, and neural circuits to try and figure out what's going on. The other scientist, Bob Austin, he's a condensed matter physicist who's, who's interested in biological materials. So he's got a kind of wide ranging, you know, research, like looking at devices and things like that that can be used to analyze or sort biomolecules, development of fluorescent probes and things like that. So yeah, that was college, I guess.
0: I assume you're also a
1: party animal. Yeah, I was a bit of a a party animal. Uh, (laughs) I
0: I was not expecting that response.
1: uh, You know, it's important to be social when you're young. Well,
0: physics majors usually aren't, you know.
1: (laughs) it's tough right there's a lot to manage there um you know if you have like three or four pretty complicated physics classes and then i was swimming about 20 hours a week uh you know like the the maximum that the ncaa would allow pretty much so i had to juggle my homework uh you know my classes and that kind of thing so you know every every now and then you just need to go out with your friends and and have a good time and and not worry about that stuff were you in an eating club so I was in an eating club. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I should say something about that. I guess that people might not be familiar. But uh, Princeton, we do have fraternities, but it's not a very big scene. In terms of the social life, the university has, to uh, 11 clubs now. They're quite old. You know, a lot of them, the history goes back at least a, a century. Probably about two thirds of the upperclassmen, juniors and seniors will join uh, one of these clubs. And it's really just number one, a place to eat. So instead of the university dining hall, you know, most people take their meals there. Number two, it's a place to, um, you know, socialize and and meet people. So for the most part, they'll host parties and other events a couple times a week. You can hang hang out with your friends and and meet new people, that sort of thing. I was in an eating club called the Cloister Inn. Kind of, we just call it Cloister, but it, it had a reputation for having a lot of swimmers and rowers. Um, so we, we probably had about half the swim team uh, and half the rowing team in Cloyster, you know, and, and a bunch of other people from the university as well.
0: So your master's was still in biophysics, right? So it sounds like it was kind of a slow transition from physics to to bench biology. Can you tell us about that? And I know you did some things in the intervening periods.
1: So yeah, after undergrad, I kind of decided I would apply to grad school. I didn't consider too much what what else I would do. I applied and I got into Stanford, into their biophysics program, uh, which was a very small program. I think it still is. There's typically only like, I don't know, six or so students per year that they accept. So I, I moved all the way across the country. Uh, you know, I had until that point I had kind of grown up and lived in New Jersey. I think it was the first time I'd been in California, other than my interviews at, you know, Stanford and, and Cal and a few other places. And I started in the the biophysics program there. So I actually started in a, in a PhD program. I, I left early. That's why I have the the master's. So I'll, I'll I'll touch on that in a second. But the uh lab that I joined was pretty hardcore electrophysiology. So it's doing uh, like single cell recordings from slices and in vivo mouse brain. Really classic uh like plat- patch clamping that people have done for a lot of years. So that, that was a pretty interesting experience. I you know I'm pretty happy that I I did that actually because that that's a pretty unique skill that you know is kind of not that common anymore in traditional biology as everything has kind of shifted towards uh, cellular and, and molecular. So so I mentioned that I uh, I started a PhD program there and uh, and I actually left after three years I think. So what what happened was uh, I actually injured myself pretty severely. I was rock climbing and uh, I had a pretty bad knee injury kind of in my in my second year of of grad school. I ended up having five surgeries on it and I spent six months, maybe more on crutches. This is a a pretty like a pretty complicated injury and the the doctors just didn't know what to do. And I just had like one surgery after another and like uh, hundreds of physical therapy appointments by the end of it. It really put me in a a tough spot and kind of cut into what I was able to do. I ended up leaving after three years uh, with my master's and I joined a company at the time that's called, uh, was called Iperion. Iperion was a pretty interesting company. It was founded, I think uh, about 2007-ish, like right after Shinya Yamanaka published his famous induced pluripotent stem cell work. So the, the whole point of Iperion was to get iPS cells from patients and differentiate them into various kinds of of neural tissue. Uh, At the time, we were mostly working with motor neurons, but we moved to astrocytes and also cortical neurons. So so the idea was to differentiate these neurons from patients that are affected with various uh, neurodegenerative diseases and screen drugs against them to see if there was something we could find that would reverse this disease phenotype. So I spent two and a half years at at Iperion, which was a a pretty interesting experience. We actually had five different CEOs in the two and a half years that I was there.
0: How large was the company at the time?
1: Uh, At the time I joined, the company was about 15 people. And the the biggest that we got was 50 people, kind of towards the end of my, my tenure there. But it, it was kind of a, a pretty volatile place, you know, in a lot of ways. So there's the rapid turnover of senior staff that I mentioned. It was also, uh, you know, at the time, like it was a, a pretty hot topic. It was uh, funded by uh, Kleiner Perkins, kind of while the firm was still in their, in their heyday. There was a lot of money and a lot of expectations that came with it. So while I was there, I worked on their ALS and their SMA program. And that was kind of my first opportunity to learn about uh, high throughput screening and, and small molecule screening, because that was so important to the company. There were a lot of people there that were uh, like extremely expert in that, having come from uh, like Merck, ultra high throughput screening labs. So this is kind of my first introduction to robotics, compound handling and, uh, and high throughput, high throughput screening.
0: And they're ultimately acquired by BMS, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. So Iperion I was acquired by BMS. Uh, I, I left in, let's see, I left in 2011, kind of wrapped up my work, and, and we submitted a paper. Um, then I, I went back to grad school at UCSD, and then a couple years later, Iperion was acquired by Bristol-Myers Squibb. Um, it was acquired based on on some work that we had done on an anti-tau antibody that was intended for kind of some rare familial tauopathies and an Alzheimer's disease. So I forget what the what the dollar value of the acquisition was. Uh, it, it was pretty significant at the time, six hundred million dollars or something like that, including the the milestone payments. And then the the thing that's interesting is that Bristol Myers Squibb then sold the company a couple of years later after wrapping up a, a phase one trial. They sold the company to to Biogen because they decided they didn't want to work on neuroscience anymore. So so Biogen actually still has the asset, the antibody from Iperion it's in a couple of clinical trials. One of them flunked unfortunately maybe a year or two ago, but they still have it going in at least one more that that I know of. So yeah, you know, I'm still I'm still rooting for them and and uh hoping for the best at Biogen.
0: Do you consider those assets your babies <laughs> jointly so? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, me you know, me and the hundreds of other people that have worked on it um since then yeah I mean, I think that most people that were there are very proud of it, but it goes to show you how long some of these things can take, right? because you know I left the company in, in 2011, and you know Biden's still working on it now, you know in 2021 there's you know hundreds of people and hundreds of millions of dollars that have gone into that since then so so as I mentioned i uh, I left the company in 2011 uh, to go go back to grad school. Um, so,
0: Why did you decide to do that? Because you went like full-on biologist at that point, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that that's a good point. You know, I, I kind of, uh, over the years, moved, moved away from physics. Um, you know, I, I haven't used like an oscilloscope or something in probably longer than I can, can remember. You know, I wouldn't say there's really like a, a conscious decision to kind of continue to, to move in that way. I think it's just easy for me to transition to, to different spots in my career, I guess, by doing that. And the other thing is I I really did like the work that I was doing at at Hyperion because I felt like, you know, we really had a chance to help someone. You know, not not that a physicist can't help someone, but uh, it was pretty rewarding to work on something that could be a medicine one day that someone would would actually take and it it might uh, improve their life. For those reasons, I was kind of comfortable, you know, moving more and more towards biology. So yeah, I guess as to the question of of why I decided to go and and do my PhD, I kind of wanted to do that for a while. I kind of felt like I had been dealt an unlucky hand, I guess, and that I should uh, take you know an opportunity to kind of correct that, I guess, if if I could. The only thing that really cost me was was time, uh, right? I mean, there's like a, a few years spent, you know, working on a, a master's degree that's not that important for my career anymore. I guess, but you still learn something during that time. And, you know, I certainly don't regret the time that I spent at Iperion. You know, I, I certainly learned a lot there. Having thought all of this through, I kind of got to like an, an inflection point at Iperion where I had like wrapped up a project and we had kind of put packaged everything into a paper. And this is actually the first small molecule screen that I know of uh, where we screened like uh, maybe 20,000 compounds in a iPS derived motor neurons from ALS patients, so we, we put that together into a paper, and it was kind of just a pretty good, you know, place. If, if I were ever going to leave the company for for me to move on, because it kind of had achieved a, a major milestone, so I took that opportunity to apply to, um, you know, a bunch of other schools in California. California had kind of become home for me, I guess at, at that time. I'd been there for so many years, so I, I got accepted to UCSD. And I went there and met a few professors that I actually uh still I'm in contact with now. I really like them and the work that they were doing. The main people that influenced me were Larry Goldstein, Gene Yo and and Bruce Hamilton. So they're uh, three like pretty distinguished full full professors there. You know, I was just so impressed with their work and the conversations that we had. That I, you know, I, I accepted the offer from from UCSD and, and moved down to to San Diego.
0: Maybe this is a bit of a diversion, but speaking of California, has your your attitude on that changed at all over the years?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that have happened, I guess, over the, the intervening years. So, so let's think. I, you know, I got to California in 2006, you know, and I've lived in uh, Palo Alto, San Diego, and various other places in the Bay Area. So there's still a lot of things that I like about California. I mean, it, it's kind of full of wide open spaces.
0: It is beautiful.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, there's there's a lot there. Um, there's the mountains, the desert, and, a, you know, kind of a huge and very beautiful coastline. So I was fortunate to be close to there when I was in San Diego and in, you know, in, in the Bay Area as well. But there's a couple things that I, I'm not too crazy about. Just to give you an, an idea, when I was working at Iperion, I was renting kind of a, a pretty old apartment that wasn't the best in Burlingame, and I was renting it for about $1,000 you know, a month. This is kind of like 2008 to 2011, and the landlord actually only gave me a month-to-month lease because they told me that the building was in such a state of disrepair that they were considering demolishing the entire building and building something else. So if you fast forward to 2017, uh, when I was moving from San Diego back to the Bay Area, I was kind of looking around for apartments, and I came across the exact same apartment that I had rented in 2011. And it hasn't been demolished, and you know, to my knowledge, there hasn't been any significant improvement to the building, but instead of renting for $1,000 a month, which at the time was extremely expensive... Uh, It now rents for $2,200 a month. So I would say that that's pretty typical story for kind of most of the populated areas in in San Diego where the commercial development, like over the time that I've been there, has just exploded. And for various reasons, the residential development has not kept up. And it's kind of put people into a, a, you know, a pretty tough spot. I mean, including myself, I mean, the, the proposition of paying someone $25,000 a year for a property that they were previously considering demolishing, you know, that's kind of a, it's kind of an interesting, an interesting thing. But yeah, I would say that's something that's not terribly positive uh, about California. It's, it's only gotten worse in the time that I've been there. 2011, moved from Bay Area to San Diego to start school at, at UCSD. So I joined the, the biomedical sciences program, which is pretty like vanilla bread and butter, a biology program. I rotated through a couple of the labs that I interviewed with when I was there visiting. Larry Goldstein's lab, Gene Yeo's lab, and a human genetics lab, Joe Gleason's lab. So I had a pretty good time, um, you know, everywhere that I rotated in, but I decided to join Gene Yeo's lab, which was uh, made kind of a risk at the time, because at that time, Gene was still an assistant professor, you I know, mean, as opposed to, to Larry and Joe, that were like full professor in, in HHMI. But uh, I decided to join Gene's lab for a couple different reasons. One was Gene was and still is really focused on RNA biology and, and RNA binding proteins. And, uh, you know, of course, when I was at Iperion, one of the proteins that we were interested in when we were working on ALS was TDP43, which is, a, you know, pretty famous RNA binding protein. So I knew that Gene was interested in TDP43, and I knew that I could get opportunity to look at the protein in more detail and the mechanisms of disease, I guess, in ALS, which we were less concerned about, you know, at Iperion because we were busy screening small molecules and, and all that. The other thing was that you know Gene he was and he still is a, a really enthusiastic guy. Um, you know he's always excited about science. You I know mean, it doesn't matter too much what it is. He's he's always excited, and uh, he's able to recruit and, and get a lot of people into the lab that were also really enthusiastic and really excited. Sometimes you'll come across an academic lab where a lot of the postdocs don't really want to be there. Like uh, people are just looking for the exit, you know, whatever they need to do to to get their next thing. And somehow Gene's lab didn't didn't have so much of that. Most of the, the postdocs that were there were really stoked about the work that they were doing and, and were still engaged. So yeah, that's kind of why I decided to do that. And, uh, you know, he, he ended up being my advisor for the, you know, five years that it took me to finish my, my PhD. We're still friends. We still talk. He actually had his 10-year anniversary of the founding of, of his lab, you know, when he got his assistant professor position. And he invited myself and a lot of other alumni back to San Diego, and, uh, and, and we had a, a great time. So it's kind of become a, a community of people that, that still talk and, and look out for each other even uh, years later.
0: And then you went into biotech.
1: That's right. So then I went back to biotech. After I finished my PhD, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I was doing a bunch of different things. I was interviewing for all kinds of different jobs, biotech companies. Uh, I was interviewing with venture capital firms. I interviewed with some management consulting, even investment banks, sell uh, side equity research, just all kinds of things. I probably took like maybe 60 job interviews or something like that. And I still hadn't really decided what I wanted to do. So I needed some way to pay the bills, and, and that's kind of how I got started. You know, working with Verge Genomics. Verge actually hired me, you know, as a consultant because the company was so small and, and early stage at, at that point. They hired me as a, a consultant to work on some of their early programs on, on ALS and, and a couple other things. You know, that kind of worked for me because I was working remotely and helping this small company to grow and plan their next experiment. But at the same time, I could still take plenty of time to go around and and talk to people trying to figure out uh, what I would do next, I guess.
0: Cool. And so kind of in going through your education and dipping in and out of biotech and going back and all this, what would you say are the most impactful things you've learned?
1: I would say probably the most important thing that I've learned is that your relationships matter. It may be even more so than like what milestones or what your salary was or whatever at any particular place, because biotech is still like a relatively small community, right? It's obviously growing, but where I am here in the Bay Area, a lot of people know each other, you know, either directly or by association and kind of work together for a lot of years. So your reputation and your uh, relationships, you know, that's really important. I can't stress that, you know, enough. Be nice to everybody, right? You never know where you're going to run into these people again. And, and they, you know, they may be able to help you or you may have the opportunity to help them.
0: Was there anything that surprised you? I mean, I guess in your case, you had already worked at a biotech before doing your PhD. So maybe you weren't as influenced by misperceptions as some other students might be.
1: Yeah, I I think I was fortunate about that. I I mean, I would say that, and maybe this goes into another piece of advice, I think it behooves people to think pretty carefully about uh, where they decide to work. I mean, one, one thing that you see kind of with students who know that they want out of academia and they want to go to a biotech is they think that basically any biotech job is going to be better than whatever their alternative is that's just not the case just because you land a job at a biotech doesn't mean that you know it could be a very unpleasant place to work in general or or it could be the wrong place for you to work you know that's one thing when i when i talk to students i try to tell them to do some due diligence on these places that that they're considering you know working a lot of small biotech companies are kind of founded on the promise of some kind of new technology and a lot of times that it, it's untested so one thing that I tell students is to, you know, look at whatever technology this biotech company is pitching and and ask yourself if you really believe it yourself or not, right? I mean, because everybody sees like the seminars or a paper that has a ton of things in there that nobody really believes. And if that's the cornerstone for a new company, then you should not go. <laughs> Probably be preferable to stay in a, an academic postdoc or, or hold out for something else than to jump on a bandwagon that's not really there, I guess.
0: Are there any other pieces of advice you have for students looking for their first biotech job?
1: Networking and talking to everyone that you can, you know, either formally or informally is critical, right? Like a lot of people send out, you know, like applications for a job cold and, and, you know, like, like that can work. Plenty of people have gotten jobs that way. Plenty of people hire that way. But, you know, I think if you can engage with someone, you know, in a conversation, you know, this could be someone that you connect to through LinkedIn, through an alumni network, you know, through a professor that has contacts somewhere. If you can speak to someone, you can make a case for yourself and be considered for a job, you know, where you you might not ordinarily, right? For for example, if if you're just submitting applications cold and you don't have like every single checkbox, there could be somebody there that's just going to put it into like um, the trash can or, or a low priority pile, whatever it might be, and turn to the next one. But uh, if you can actually speak to a person and say, you know, look, I'm a, a little bit underqualified for this, but over here I did like X, Y, and Z, and it was great then you kind of have opportunity to make a case for yourself and be considered for something where you ordinarily wouldn't be.
0: I think that's a great point. I mean, ha- having written up a number of job specs now, <laughs> you know, I think very often what's written may not be entirely the perfect depiction of what they really need. You know, th- there may be certain requirements that are a lot more important than others, even though on a page they're given equal weight.
1: Yep, makes sense.
0: The classic Peter Thiel question, What's what's something you believe to be true that most others don't?
1: I'll give you something. Maybe it's a little bit controversial, but I think that people don't want to be told what to do. A lot of people might not agree with this. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that it's a truth that, that I find self-evident that, that nobody does. But I, I think a lot of people think that other people want to be told what to do or need to be told what to do. Or, you know, that they will make other people's lives much better by telling people what to do. And, uh, you know, it's it's my belief that most people kind of want to do their own thing, uh, whether it's in life or, or their career, whatever it may be. And they kind of want to figure out things on their own, you know, draw their own conclusions, make their own observations and then pursue whatever goal or desire it is that they have you know as opposed to buying into some kind of centralized goal or you know necessarily getting you know a lot of input from someone who's in authority so that that i would say is my truth that i believe that many other people don't
0: and how do you think founders of biotech startups can take advantage of
1: that i think the key is to give your employees the latitude and the independence that they need to pursue goals that are important for the company in their own way. So, so I would say that a, a lot of founders, they certainly have a vision for the company and, and they have goals and then th- they will hire people. And for the most part, those people, you know, if they're going to a company that's small like that, a, a lot of times they're also excited by the vision and the prospects of the company. Founders could do a lot more to just trust the motivations of the people that they have hired without trying to impose tons of like external culture influences, for example, or micromanaging or ad nauseum, like goal setting, where kind of every single activity is monitored and tracked. I think there's some founders, mostly because they're so passionate about their own vision, that kind of want to impose a lot of a lot of strict rules right about how people should pursue that vision and i think they could be a lot more productive by just trusting that their employees vision and their own is aligned and that the employee will actually you know figure out how to get things done you know maybe more efficiently than someone who's kind of at you know at a very high level you know kind of handing out mandates i guess
0: do you have any closing words of wisdom for our listeners?
1: You, know, you guys should should keep an eye on the bioinformatics CRO podcast. Uh, I listened to a couple of these podcasts, and honored to have the opportunity to to be here. And I'll certainly listen to more in the future. Uh, and advise all the other listeners to you know uh, to tune in when you have time as well.
0: Well, it's 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 our privilege to have you. Thanks thanks so much for joining us, Fernando.
1: Thanks, Grant.